Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, Jason Reynolds. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Oh, okay. It cut Can out. you hear me now? Oh, okay. Uh, okay. 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 All set now. Yeah. So I just I just said um, good morning again, and I was just wondering where where you are. I am now, today. Uh, I am in, good morning, by the way, um, I am in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. in my house, holed up, <laughs> waiting for the world to change. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, I'm in Minnesota, Minneapolis, and so this has been a place to be Absolutely. Um, for the last couple of weeks, and uh, um, you know, one thing I want to say to you right now is that I'm just, I'm carrying all of my words and my questions with a lot of humility right now. Mm. And um, I guess what I'd love to invite and understanding that you may have to lead me is that we, that we this morning have the conversation you want to be having or hearing and maybe that means questions that people like me in white bodies are not asking. Um, so I really want to invite you to um, call me on that or, or just or turn corners. And um, I, I want to say also that, uh, as, as you may, may or may not recall, we got connected on Twitter by a guy named Dante Stewart, a young man who's a a black um, seminarian and pastor and preacher and really a wonderful writer. And um, because I'm, because I feel the inadequacy of, of my words and my questions, I actually also reached out to him to ask him what he would want to, yeah. how he would want to draw you out. So I'm going to keep bringing him into this conversation. And That's perfectly um, fine. Yeah. And so he, he talked about picking up. He said he didn't actually read you. He's, I mean, you, you are quite young. Um, he's a bit younger than you. He's in his 20s. But he, you know, he said that he picked up Ghost just a couple of years ago and was immediately drawn by the way you told stories that intersected themes of race, community, social change, failure, insecurity, etc. Mm. He said it was the story of my life. <laughs> and... It feels it's he he also said um he talked about the how you have brought forward the power of young black people's stories to be told in a moment in which their peers are dehumanized and dying in very public ways that you've been doing that for a while, so here we are in june twenty twenty um, with our country upended um and it sparked by a lot of things but sparked very specifically by the killing of george floyd here in minneapolis and one of the things that's happening is 
that these names, that names, his name and other names are finally, I would say, I hope, penetrating the American consciousness in a new way. Brianna, Ahmad, Trayvon, Eric, Sandra, Tamir, Philandro, and on and on. And that there is this wider understanding that these deaths reflect a visible extreme and of a threat of brutality that black Americans and particularly black young people have been living every day. Is there anything you'd want to correct about what I just said or nuance? <laughs> so far, so good, Krista. You know what I mean? so, so far, everything seems like it. I okay. mean, that's... <laughs> okay. You know, right. You're spot on so far. <laughs> okay. Well, so so just with that setting the scene of how the scene looks in part from where I sit, I want to ask you, like, what are you drawing on? Where is your memory and your body memory going Mm. as you move through and make sense of these days? So what, what, what it was to be Jason growing up in a neighborhood called Oxon Hill in D.C. Mm. in the 1980s and 1990s that is really with you as you walk through 2020? So, so, so first, let me say this because I, I said that there was nothing to correct, and there really isn't anything to correct in what you said. But there is, there is an, uh, uh, there is an addition to it. Um, okay. Because what happens is we we talk about, and this is something that I I speak about often in my work and, and in my when I'm speaking to audiences is America has a tendency, and this is also like a human thing, right? We we love symbolism. Symbolism is an interesting thing that we. Uh, are able to attach ourselves to um, in a way that can convince us sometimes that half love is whole love. Uh, Right. And, and so I wanted to ask you about that. I want you to explain what you mean by that. So what what I'm, yeah, half love is whole love. So what I, what I mean is um, there are ways for us to use symbolism as a way to absolve us or at least sort of, present a, a, a look it's, it's all a lie to oneself to me but to, to absolve us of, of shame and guilt so so if i could stand behind um if i can hashtag black lives matter i can feel better about myself during this day and feel like i've actually done something right like that's yeah. a very real thing that happens um and so the deaths of unarmed black people at the hands of uh police officers or uh, white vigilantes, I mean, you know, which is also historic in this country, yeah. um, are what we use to uh, are what we use as sort of totems, right? They become symbols that we lift up to then rally behind and figure out either how to push something forward or how to push something down in ourselves, right? And the one thing that I want to make sure that we're that we're clear about uh, is. People who have been killed by police officers, the number of people, of black people who have been killed by police officers is outrageous. But it pales in comparison to the number of people who have not died, but have suffered police assault and brutality and violence and abuse. And because those people have not died, you don't hear about them, but they have to die a death every day. Right. The fear and the Uh so so people always wonder, like, why the black community is so up in arms or or why the black community is so afraid. It's because we've been seeing it. 
right? It isn't just it isn't yeah. just you know fifteen hundred deaths. It's it's one hundred fifty thousand people. It's a million uh, black and brown people in America who are terrified of police officers. If you want to know where true um, where the most common form of police violence affects black people, I wish we could do body scans of what's happening cellularly in the fifteen seconds it takes a police officer walk to walk from a squad car to the car of a person with a black person uh, to the car of a black yeah. person. Right. What's happening in our bodies is is violent. Right. And, it, and, it's, it, it, and it's coming from uh, from experience, from things that have that have been seen from from, I mean, all sorts of things. And so I just want to make sure we're clear that just because a person um, that, that 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 without dismissing these deaths, because these deaths are important, obviously. Right. These, you know, I am I am forever going to be saying the names of as many people as possible. I just want to be clear, though, is that is to, to the audience that. These deaths are are the number of deaths compared to the number of people who are carrying abuse in their bodies because they've been right. because they've been abused and survived. Uh, and, you know, it's a different conversation. I, to me, it's also. I mean, yeah, and also you. I mean, you're very astute about how our brains work. I mean, there's also a way in which a name and a story, right, can mm-hmm. can penetrate a lo- and make a larger story land. But also, I, I want to be really clear, I don't think this is just about bru- the brutality of police officers. It's not. It's the brutality of our society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we could, we could take the—we're using the police force or the, or, or the you know, law enforcement system in this country as, um, as the particular archetype to dissect and, and, and critique. But the truth of the matter is, is that what's happening in the police force is happening in the educational system. It's happening right. in housing authority. It's happening in food, right? Where the food lies in certain communities is happening. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the way we've structured. It, it's the way we've structured the, con- the country. Yeah. 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 So... So yeah, I guess so. Like, I I want to ask that question again. Like, what was it like to be Jason? Ah, uh, yes. Growing up, like, how did this all manifest? Oh um, man, what's with you as you think of as you walk through these days about how how you started walking in your body as a child? You know, I I think uh, young Jason is always thinking of um, my mother. I think I, I was raised by by the most interesting woman in the world. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure most children, you know, it's like depending upon your relationship, all of us feel like our mothers are the greatest people ever on earth. And the way that our mothers always thought all of us were geniuses when we were infants, <laughs> and most of us aren't. <laughs> but uh, but I, I really, I was raised by a fascinating woman. And there were certain things that we learned in the house that were very, that, that sort of molded me. Um, for instance, my mom was, a, my mom was obsessed with death. And because of her obsession with death, she um, and because she wasn't getting the answers that she wanted in regards to death from what she was reading in, in traditional faith that she had grown up in, which is which is Christian faith, because she was a, she's a, a Southern black woman. And in those days, you were Baptist or you were Methodist. Right. That that's sort of the way that worked. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but she wasn't getting the answers that she wanted. And so when she moved to D.C., she started studying uh, Eastern Eastern philosophies and Eastern religious and faith systems, Eastern religions and faith systems. And um, so we were raised in this household that had a little bit of everything. And it, it opened up 
my ability, her children's ability to express themselves. I never knew like words like sin. I, I never heard it. It just wasn't a I didn't know it just wasn't a thing, right? Shame, shame, and guilt weren't sort of elements of our lives, um, and and our voices and our ability to express ourselves were of the utmost importance, even if it meant disagreeing with the parent, right? So if my mother said something that we disagreed with, I was totally uh, able to say, "I disagree. I think you're wrong. I think you're being mean." I don't know why you're, you know, I don't know why I'm being punished for this, you know, and, and as long as I was respectful and had and could say it with confidence and had reasons for the things that I felt, my mother would hear me out. And and so when it came time to sort of as I grew and became whoever it is that I was becoming, there was never any fear of saying I disagree. Right. There was never any fear of challenging things because I had lived in the house. I'd grown up in a, in a home that challenged everything, everything. Uh, my mother had no problem saying that if something did not make sense, even if it was an ancient belief system, she had no problem saying it doesn't make sense. So we don't have to. So we don't have to believe that. Right. Like when you're a right. kid, right. And you're a kid. You're like, mom, you know, everyone is telling me that that my, my friends who are gay are aren't going to go to heaven. You know, you're a kid. And that's scary. Right. And my mom was like, oh, that's not true. Right. right? <laughs> You know, and for her, and for her, and for her, it was like that's not true because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, uh, <laughs> right? But, <laughs> uh, okay, there, I see a thread there because I feel like what you do with your writing, yes, it's you know, it's in this genre we call YA writing, right? Right. It's Ugh. for kids, right? So, they but say. actually, what you do is cut through. I can't say bullshit on public radio, but you say it plain, like the absurdity of things. Yeah. I, I don't know um, how else to do it. I think, mm. you know, the way the way we were brought up, it was it was say the thing. Right. No, no point in yeah. mincing words. Just just say the thing. But yeah. if you but if you're going to say it, stand on your square. You know, we don't there's no time for for you to say a truth uh, with cowardice. Right. You, you you lean into the truth courageously. You say it now. If it is proven to be incorrect, then you change it. Right. You you you, hum, mm-hmm. you, you accept that mm-hmm. with humility and you adjust your way of thinking. So so as a kid, that was that was all very normal in my house. And it was secretive. My mom would always say, look, don't tell people what we're doing in here. Like the way I'm the way I'm raising you up might not be. You know, up, up, up to <laughs> so you standard. Had to keep it a secret. I had to keep it a secret. I had to keep it a secret. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so, uh, when I discovered language at the age of ten through rap music, um, because I wasn't a reader, I, that wasn't a thing in our house. We were. It's interesting. My mother, as brilliant as she was, and as progressive as she was, uh, she also was a mom raising kids, working long hours, and doing all the mm-hmm. things that a lot of us have to do. And so, reading just wasn't. Um, something that was modeled in our home. And it yeah. wasn't... It so wasn't, are you... Uh, Abram X. Kendi, who you wrote this book, um, stamped with... I'm going to... We're going to talk about this. But he wrote... Mm-hmm. He said, Jason Reynolds and I avoided books like we avoided police officers growing up in the 1990s. It's true. No no books for me. I mean, and why would I read books, honestly? Back mm-hmm. in those days, I think, mm-hmm. if we're being honest about what the, the contemporary canon was in the 1990s as it pertained to black kids... Uh, I can name a few people, but even their books were sort of rooted in the 1980s and the 1970s because that was their sweet mm-hmm. spot. That's when they were young people, right? Um, right. But in, in the 90s, when you have you have you have these three major uh, 
three major sort of cultural elements converging. You have the the the, the maturing, uh, like the maturation of hip hop music. Right now, this thing is growing legs. It's more than a fad now. People are realizing that maybe this is going to take root. That's happening in the early '90s. You have uh, the, the the wave, the, the height of the crack epidemic. That's happening in the early yeah. late '80s, early '90s. Hip hop yeah. is hip hop is using hip hop is being used as a way to actually fight against it. Right, like it's it's in response to it. So much of it. And then you have because of you know the the other part of that convergence that triangulation was um, what we now know as HIV and AIDS. All of that's happening mm-hmm. around me as a child, right? My yeah. na- my neighbor my neighbor uh, died of AIDS. My well, two of my neighbors died of AIDS. Uh, and mm-hmm. I mean on my block, right? Like we I have family members who were addicted to crack cocaine during that time. I have an older brother who all he was doing was listening to rap music. All of this is happening, and there's a ten year old child in the middle of it. And there are no books about any of it, and mm-hmm. so and so I, reading just wasn't my jam. It wasn't it wasn't for me. So I studied rap lyrics, you know, liner notes. Um, I would open up cassette tapes and I would you know unfold the liner notes and I would read what the rappers were were which, rapping, which, which is poetry, right? Which, like which rap is poetry. Are poetry. Thank you for saying it. So which, you were which reading is poetry. poetry. I was reading poetry, <clears throat> and it was mm-hmm. and and that's all it took, right? I didn't want to be a rapper. I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to write it down. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of, of all this. And, and, and so when you combine that with my mother's, uh, my mother's sort of pouring into us that like, look, you can say whatever you want to say. You can feel however you want to feel. You can research and study whatever you want to research. and study. You can believe whatever you want to believe. Uh, this gave me the platform to put forth my, my young, uh, <laughs> curious ideas as a, as a 10, 11, 12 year old. It's interesting. I was um, <clears throat> I was looking at a Kojo Namdi, and who's such a great um, oh, he's awesome public radio host in DC. Had interviewed you actually not that long ago. Maybe was it this month? Was it? Well, yeah, early he's June? all the time. But I we, mean, I'm sure he's interviewed you a lot. Yeah, last, but he last did week. one. He yeah, he just did one last week with mm. it, on with kids with your readers and um but I, I don't know if it was in this context or another but there was a librarian in DC maybe this was something written about you talking about how before your books came along what she was doing with kids in her library was analyzing rap lyrics mm-hmm. right that's the way <laughs> um <clears throat> but i just have to um you know to listen to that show where kids called in to name their questions with you um you know, I'm scared of being a black person. What should I do? Mm. Why do people still hurt black people? I'm nine years old. My question is, I'm scared. How can kids help bring change in this country so we're all treated fairly and it doesn't matter what color your skin is? Mm. I, I just wanted to put those questions out there and name that that's what you're writing into. Yeah, I, I, you know, Krista, it's been um, I wish I could tell you that that was the first time I've heard those questions. But the, <laughs> but the truth is, is that I've been doing this work a long time. And I'm at, at this point, I've, I've spoken to probably a million kids around this country and parts of the world. And those questions come, you know, I've mm-hmm. had I've had a little girl in Philly. So sweet. And she made me bend down so she can whisper in my ear, do I ever wish that my skin was different, you know, because of what she felt, what she was dealing with. 
or I've had young people tell me about their their brothers and sisters being killed by police officers or uh, I mean like this is very real um and my job uh, is to love them and if I and if I claim to love them because all of us claim to love our kids but I think sometimes we the, our love sometimes gets conflated with with our fear and and that's okay right I, I understand that fear is real but for me my my own personal opinion is that if I love them I have to tell them the truth I have to figure out how to tell them the truth um because be, one because a lot of these kids can handle it I think we spend mm-hmm. so much time mm-hmm. trying to uh, protect our children that we also because they see it they see they, it they see it. They know it. And it's just true of kids altogether. Everything uh, yes. that's going on that pe- adults think they're shielding them from. But they're not. They, they know. And, and so if they know and we're not helping them process, now it's become mm-hmm. more dangerous than you've ever imagined. Right. So mm-hmm. we have an opportunity to lean into the discomfort of having to talk to kids about this in order for them to find language around it. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and honestly, I don't want, you know, I always tell young people, I, I have racism is nothing to make sense of. That's the complicated part about it. Right. right. <laughs> you know, that's, right. that's why it's such a strange conversation. It's nothing to make sense of. Um, yep. but, but we do have to lean into having a discussion about how nonsensical it is. Yeah, that, I think that language of um, helping kids process, I think that feels that's, that's really, that's the, you know, one place you said you don't write pain porn or trauma porn. Mm. Um, and boy, we are addicted to that stuff in this society, like true crime. <laughs> um, but the stories you tell have a lot of pain in them, and they have a lot of trauma in them. I just, I wonder, um, how would you talk about that line? Like, what are the different ingredients that go into that line between telling the hard, true stories? I think, um, for me, the trauma is real. Pain is real, uh, but but it is not omnipresent. Um, it, it isn't something that governs my life, and, it's, mm-hmm. and it especially doesn't mm-hmm. cover. And it especially doesn't govern the lives of children. Right? I think it is disingenuous to write it. I think it's I think it's hack work um, because the truth is is that if you know children, children who are the most human amongst us, by the way, children always find a way to laugh. Children always find a way, right? right? If you're talking to a 14-year-old, no matter what's going on, a 14-year-old is trying to figure out where the joke is. They're trying to figure out when the opportunity comes for the sad part to be over so that they can roast their their best friends so they can, right? This is, it's a, I think that the the sort of fervent nature of of, of finding humor uh, Mm -hmm. and lightness and and levity is, is, is a, is a remarkable gift of youth, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I'm not interested. Look, I write, I write that which I believe is real and things that happen. And I want, I don't want to shy away from things that are complicated and tough, but I also want to write whole stories about whole people. I mm-hmm. think sometimes we reduce children uh, and young people to half formed things. Right. And so we write, so we write half formed stories about them. Right. Uh, it's the same thing. It's, it, it all tie. And, and, and even that ties to the way people talk about children's literature Right. People talk about children's literature as if it is, uh, uh, you know, a category that is full of half formed work. But that's because they, too, believe that children are half formed. Right. And so I and so I and so I think those of us who acknowledge the humanity of young people, those of us who acknowledge the complexity and the beauty and the sophistication of childhood know Mm -hmm. that when you're writing it, all those elements have to be present. 
It's interesting when you're talking about that, <clears throat> thinking about that that writing about half-formed humans can go both directions. I think about some of the books I was given growing up in the middle of America in a white family, like the Happy Hollisters, <laughs> which I eventually threw down in disgust. But, right? <laughs> um, that's another way we don't tell the truth. I mean, you, you, I want to talk about some of the ways that you get at this because I think these are important tools for all the rest of us and parents and teachers, but all of us, because this is, this is a, I, I love the language of wholeness. I feel like that's, that's what we want to be walking towards. Um, you know, you talk about using synonyms when you're helping kids process and letting them come up with synonyms. And one that I was so intrigued by that you used is a made-up synonym for, the, for freedom is, this is one word, breath laughter. Mm, breath laughter, yeah. Oh, sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I think um, I, I, for me, like my whole life is around figuring out is it, playing around with the alchemy of language. Like that's my whole jam, right? I want to mm-hmm. figure what exactly, uh, what are the, re, the 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 sort of chemical reactions that take place when you put this word next to this word. You know, that's something that I think about the poet John Ashbery. That was his whole thing, right? It's like, I don't know what this means, but if you put these two words together, what does it make you feel, right? And I, yeah. I'm i curious about that. So you take something like freedom. What what does free, what's, what could be a synonym for freedom? And, and I made up the word breath laughter. Um, because there's something about the idea for me that uh, when I think of breath, I think of, I think of life, but I also think of um, like, it doesn't stop, right? So if you exhale, right? We're dealing with this right now, by the way, when it comes to the pandemic, right? That's that's the thing, right? Is that if you exhale, yeah. Yeah. what what yeah. what ha- what comes out of your mouth spreads and spreads and spreads. Like it goes and goes and goes and goes, and that's something to think about, right? It's something mm-hmm. to think about mm-hmm. what happens when when we breathe mm-hmm. out or breathe in. Like it's 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 a constant sort of. It's, it's also interesting to think about that we're breathing in and then breathing, breathing out, which means it's, it's a constant recycling of energy. What, a, what, a, what an amazing thing to think about. Yeah. Right? Just constant yeah. recycling of energy. And so what if laughter uh, could also be recycled in that way? What if it could just go? Right? That is freedom to me. If it could just go and go and go and go and go. If it could be the, you know, if it could be the, the ripple in the water. Uh, like to me, that, that feels free. Right? Now, physically free. You know, it's a different conversation, but that feels like freedom uh, to me. So, yeah. Mm. I Something I really appreciate <clears throat> in, in, your, in your work and your philosophy of writing and what you write is that you, it's a reverence you have which I think is an appropriate reverence, but it's not a very American reverence mm. for the power of, of words and ideas. And, um, you know, I grew up in the middle of the country. This is, not a, this, is, this is not related to race. Like, this is a very American thing, this anti-intellectualism, this, this mistrusting of... Um, of the life of the mind. Mm. Um, and so 
you know, I watch this. You, I mean, what's your title? You are the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature of the Library of Congress. What a yeah. fabulous title. I watched you give a speech. Um, I, was it for the Library of Congress or librarians? Mm. And you talked about libraries as sacred spaces and librarians as architects. Mm. And what if libraries are warehouses where we build human libraries and that the questions kids have get stored on the shelves and passed around and loaned out to others. And you talked about the reference desks we have in our heads. And Mm. um, I just feel like as we walk into this new, this next chapter which I think does have the... I stopped myself from using the word new. Like, I think it has the potential to be a new chapter. Um, this piece of it that you're calling out, can it, it, it is, it's countercultural in a strange way that we don't reflect on in American culture and feels really essential to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I do. I think... Uh, and it's interesting, because no one ever talks about that, that speech, uh, because I... Ultimately, I think that what what my role for as long as I am in this, you know, on this plane and as long as I am doing this work, my role will always be to figure out how to create fortitude uh, in the minds and bodies and spirits of young people. Right. I'm trying mm-hmm. to fortify them. Uh, at the end of the day, I think. It's it's also the reason why I do so much around imagination. Like this is a big deal for me, or why I do the whole like let's create synonyms, uh, because yeah. I, I you know because I, at the end of the day, ultimately I need young people. We we right the collective we need young yeah. people to be able to activate their imaginations. If they cannot right if if they don't have if they can't if, if by the time you're out of high school your imagination is shot, uh, we're in trouble. Big time. We're in trouble. But how does one keep an imagination fresh in a world that works double time to suck it away? Right. How does one keep an imagination firing off when we live in a nation that is constantly vacuuming it from them? And I think that the answer is one must live a curious life. Right. One must have stacks and stacks and stacks of books on the inside of their bodies. Right. And those books don't and those books don't have to be. Uh, the the things that you've read, those books, I mean, that's good too, but those books could be the conversations that you've had with your friends that are unlike the conversations you were having last week, right? Mm-hmm. Those conver- it, it could yeah. all, it could, it could be about this time taking the long way home and seeing what's around you that you've never seen because most of us, especially city folk, uh, we stay in our little quadrants, right? We stay on the, the five block radius, wherever the coffee shop is and the school and the yeah. church, right? It's like, but what if you were to walk the other way? What if you were to explore the places around you? What if you were to speak to your neighbor, right? And and, and, and to figure mm-hmm. out how to strike a conversation with the person you've never met. What if you were to try to walk into a situation uh, free of, of, of preconceived notion? Just just a few, just once, right? Once a day, just walk in and say, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And let's let's see. Let me give this person the benefit of the doubt to be to be a human. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I just... Yes, so cool. Well, can I just say one thing about that? I was yeah. just I've been thinking recently about the lang- the word repentance. I just think you might like this because you like words. Mm-hmm. The repentance in the Greek and the Hebrew, it is not about like a private. It's not like about a private conversion. The word is like kinetic. The word actually 
is about stopping in your tracks and walking another way, which is, is like wow. what you just described is a That's way amazing. to talk. Like I think in some ways that the way you said it is it's very simple in the sense that it's very manageable, like stepping out of our neighborhoods. That's and, it. <laughs> but I mean, isn't that? But isn't that the thing, right? Isn't that? I, I think that's the other. This is also why I work with young people and why I love young people mm-hmm. is because they haven't complicated life yet, right? So, like, if mm-hmm. if you ask a young if, if you ask a young person, what advice would you give uh, a person right now who, um, like, what advice would you give a white person right now in the midst of all the things that are happening? You know, and and a young person, especially a young black person, would say, "Oh, stop being racist," and they, and right, like, <laughs> because for them it's like for them it's very much so like this. Why are we complicating this conversation? Right, like let's figure yeah. out whatever the, the 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 shortest distance between A and B is a straight line. So let's just do the straight line way and say, here's what you could do: stop being racist right now. It's on you to figure out what that means, but that's the answer, yeah. right? Like, so, yeah. And, and I think it's like Oliver Wendell Holmes: the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm searching for. What I'm trying yeah. to to push for. Just step out your neighborhood. Just talk to somebody different. It, it, because yeah. we underestimate what this does for the mind. That's all. We underestimate mm-hmm. what it does mm-hmm. for the imagination. You know. Mm-hmm. And as long as those imaginations are firing off, then their libraries will continue to be filled. Somebody told me at that same lecture. It cuts off when you watch it on, on the internet. But at the same lecture, when we got to the Q and A part, a woman stood up and she said, "Have you ever been to Senegal?" And I said, no. She said, do you know any Senegalese people? I said, I do. And she said, you should ask them um, about what, what they say whenever an elder has died in the community. And I said, what do they say? They say that, that, that um, a library has burned. Oh. Now, I didn't know this, right? But, but wow. isn't that something? Yeah. Yes. A, a library has burned. Yes. Oh, my. Um. So, in the year 2020, mm-hmm. before 2020 became 2020, <laughs> you published this book uh, with Ibram X. Kendi called Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. It is a, I guess, you, it's a, you call it a remix of, mm-hmm. of his book, Stamped from the Beginning. Um, when did this book actually get published? March 8th. What's the pub- March. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Yep. The week of the lockdown. In the exact, we were on tour. <laughs> um, so I think like following on what we've just been talking about, and then that we all, that we are libraries, <laughs> that all human beings are libraries and have libraries and we have to create new libraries. Mm. Um, I want to, I, I want to, I I find again this book is about ideas, but as you're you keep using the word, it's about our it's about what has formed our imaginations. Correct. Which has formed our lives, which has formed our symbols, which has formed the way we, in granular ways, structure and organize our life together. Absolutely, I, I mean this book is. It's interesting because no one's ever talked about it that way. Good on you, Krista. No one's ever talked about it that way. I think, I think you know, usually people talk about, well, this is sort of the history of a thing, right? And it is, yeah. but, but that history is birthed out of 
the imagination, right? It, yeah. it literally was conjured up. We're talking about, yeah. <laughs> like this is this is how like, imagination is so powerful that it could set forth 400, 500 years of something wrong, which means that it very well could set forth 400, 500 years of something right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're, you know, like it's, it's, it, that's sort of the beauty of humanity. Um, it, we just don't know it, right? But I, but I think we have to claim that beauty we, about ourselves. We right? do. Like we have to own that beauty. I mean, James Baldwin. You know, my famous Baldwin quote, and he has a gazillion, obviously. But, but my, my favorite Baldwin quote is, uh, uh, "The interior life is the real life." Right. The interior life is the real life and the intangible dreams of a person may have a tangible effect on the world. Right. Like it basically mm-hmm. saying what, what one can imagine mm-hmm. internally, what one what one can think about when nobody knows, when nobody's around. One secrets could shift human life. What an amazing thing to think about. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think what, what Stamp sort of shows is how that has happened historically. It has happened in the past. It has also happened, by the way, to to. Uh, help to to undo some of these things or to fight to undo it the imagination yeah. is the imagination is always present uh, and my role even with stamp and, and and remixing and the reason we call it a remix is because it's technically not an adapt it's it's not like a ya adaptation because i, I yeah. actually i actually rewrote the entire book um, <laughs> yeah, so which you, is a, <laughs> i mean it's written it's in your voice it's the whole thing yeah so it's a it's a very different uh, thing and, yeah. the, and and the reason why is because i i want to we we he and i both wanted to figure out how we could tap into um the imagination of young people right and in order mm-hmm. to do so you have to make a thing that feels like it was made it was tailor made for them uh, and, and when it comes to books around race or when it comes to history books um uh, Usually they are presented to students, not humans. Um, right. Right. Oh, they're, that's, they're, a, that's a great distinction. And, and, and I think we wanted to make something the first of its kind, something that was literally made thinking about a 12 year old or a 14 year old or a 16 year old, what they would want to read and how to engage them so that they actually can uh, uh, store new language, new lexicon, new vocabulary, new, new histories uh, in their in their personal libraries. So, so you know, there's a there's a lot of um, well, there's a lot of intelligence right now about how race race not just racism is a construct, mm. <clears throat> but I like just to get back to the how words can make things vivid. You know, you you also you talk about it as a thief, like rate the thief known as racism, and that's also kind of the it's an operating n- drama. Um, <laughs> In in the way you tell our story, um, I mean, it stole so much from us, yeah. right? It, I mean, it's stealing from us now. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, think about the fact that I can't fully operate, or, or that I, ha- or that I have to be conscious um, and almost ramp myself up and encourage myself to be fully human around other humans. Right to op- to be open enough to love a person who, like, who biologically is no different from me and physiologically is no different from me, yeah. but but aesthetically looks different, and and that alone, the language, the coded language attached to the color of that skin, limits my ability to engage freely with that person. It is stealing from us. It is stealing from the human experience right now. And and, and the trickiest part about language is that what and, and about racism uh, being a thief is that what it conv- what it has convinced us is that this is inherently human. 
that's the wildest part about it, right? So, right. so it right. takes from us, and then it says but it's defining of our humanity. It's it's right, and it, and it, that's what we've. Yeah. That's how we talk about it, right? It's like, but yeah. this is what yeah. this is what humans do, right? And it's yeah. like, well, for some reason, if, if this is what humans do, then why does it still feel so uncomfortable? Yeah, <laughs> if, if that is true. <laughs> it's fascinating. I don't know. And I don't know the answers, but I'm definitely I'd have a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so so let's talk through a little bit of this. Um, see, I almost caught myself saying all alternative history, but it's not an alternative history. It's definitely history. not an alternative it's history. history. I've been telling. I would have corrected that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, the, only, the only progress is I'm starting to correct myself. That's awesome. Um, but you correct me. Um, because... So basically, just just to reinforce what you said a minute ago, like this story of of race and racism, um, of and of us, um, how it has distorted, shaped, and distorted all of us, um, is a just an incredibly powerful negative example of the power of ideas and words and writing of turning something into a story that is heard and believed and internalized and lived. Yep. So, I mean, look, if there's anything I've learned uh, and if there's, if there's any more of a reason that I am motivated and encouraged to do the work that I'm doing is because I have proof that in the 1400s it was narrative that proliferated racist racism. It was narrative yeah. that proliferated the idea of, of 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 a justified slavery, a justified enslavement of of, of African people. The first people. you you name Gomez Ianes de Zorara, yeah, as the first racist. He's the first racist. It's not a name I ever heard. I, and I, nor had I before I read mm-hmm. Stamp from the beginning, uh, as we call mm-hmm. it, Stamp Senior, right? Uh, <laughs> go, okay. <laughs> Gomez, Gomez, yeah. the world's first racist. The, the reason, but the reason why he's the world's first racist isn't because he's the the first person to believe that African people should be enslaved. That's not the reason he's the first racist, right? He actually was only the scribe. He was the he was the author. He was the one who basically said, "Listen, I have an opportunity to spin the story." Because everybody is enslaving people over here in Europe, uh, but the way that we're going to justify our, our our enslavement of of innocent African people is by saying that it is salvific enslavement. It is an opportunity for us to 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 civilize and Christianize uh, the heathen, quote unquote, right? And so I'm going to write a narrative that is expressing that that is what we are doing, and it is in the it is in the writing down of the thing uh, that 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 it is crystallized. And then proliferated around the world, and that's sort of why he's right. He he basically twisted it and manipulated it into into something that it was not, and was able to create uh, justified abuse. Yeah, and and abuse that could even convince Africans that they were inferior. Like, oh. there's something interesting to me. There's something hopeful to me about this moment that at the same time we're saying these words and seeing this narrative, um, we're also, you know, we're learning things about our brains and our bodies. Like we're learning about how implicit bias infects all kinds of brains. Hmm. Um, 
so that even that we start to see like at a biological level how that landed oh. and became so right so vigorous and so tenacious i think it's i think it is a um the way that i always talk about this is i think cuz i've been obviously researching viruses as of late for obvious yeah. reasons and yeah. uh, and how they work in the body and what is actually happening in the body and r- racism and specifically racism in this context um fits fits the description right this idea that mm-hmm. you can ingest that you can ingest something that you don't know you're ingesting that it can attach itself to you cellularly right it can attach mm-hmm. itself to your cells uh, and then it can propagate, right? It, it can self-propagate yeah. and become multiple cells in your body. And then you can breathe. And as we talked about this idea of, of a recycled energy, you could breathe, right? You could say something, you could do something, you could pa- very very passively do something. And because we can't necessarily always see it, it could then infect somebody else, enter into their bloodstream, attach itself to their cells, propagate within their bodies. Think about this. And, and you could be walking around asymptomatic, right? As, right. As, right? As, right? As far as you think, nothing is the matter. Nothing is wrong with you. And you think you're me. healthy. And you think you're healthy. <laughs> yeah. you, 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 you talk, you know, you're not coughing when you speak. You're not, right? All these right. things. And the reality of the matter is it's living in your body. Like it's attached mm-hmm. to your cells. And then we talk about the idea of vaccinations. And it's like, well, vaccines always hurt, right? If you, if you, anybody who's ever had a flu shot, you know, your arm hurts for a week, you know, but, 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 but it's still a necessary, oftentimes a necessary uh, thing to do um, because what happens with the vaccine is you inject, you have to take in uh, a part of the virus itself. It then has to live in your body an attack, right? And basically create, it basically creates like a soldier wall. It creates soldiers in your body so that, so that whenever a live version of the virus re-enters the body, the, 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 the vaccine then kicks into play and, and recognizes it as the virus and fights it off. So what I'm saying is in order for us to even begin to deconstruct some of the ideas set forth 600 years ago, right? <laughs> 700, <laughs> six and a half hundred years ago. The yeah. first thing we have to do is take in the reality of the virus. We have to take it in, right? We have to understand the virus is real. It exists yeah. so that we can this recognize is, it. <laughs> this is a whole other way to think about why this moment is a convergence of a viral pandemic and oh. a race, <laughs> a racial violence pandemic or a racial awakening pandemic. Let's Absolutely. Hope. Um You know, my colleague, Lucas Johnson, said something the other day. He said, and he's black, he said, he said the I mean, it's just you're making me think of. He said the racism pandemic and the virus pandemic are similar in that you can't expect, if everybody around you is sick, you can't expect to live that way for long and get away with your health. It's true. It's true. It's, it's true. People always talk about, we, we, and this is something that we do see on the police force, right? Like, Listen, I'm, I'm, I am a response. I believe to be a responsible adult most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am always careful 
I've I've been careful, especially around children, to say all police are bad, right? I think I think when you're around young people, that's just an irresponsible statement. I, yeah, I, like yeah, at the end of the day, yeah. and I can't. I, no matter what my personal feelings are, sometimes I just can't be irresponsible with children. I just think it's not fair. But that mm-hmm. being said, I often question. It's like, look, if like like, like your friend said, you know, if if this is something that is a problem in the force. You know, we yeah. always talk about this. And if that like, well, sickness is, if that in, sickness is, is there, there at right, the root. At the root. Yeah. And, and even if gene, you are... In the DNA. Exactly. And even if you yeah. are, uh, you came in for the right reasons or you're a good, mm-hmm. quote unquote, good cop. If you're a good cop, and I always say this to my friends who are police officers, if you are a yeah. good cop and you do not hold bad cops accountable, quote unquote, bad cops accountable, then you are not a good cop and you've been infected. And that's the like, it, because because if because if I'm going to be an up an up, upstanding, especially around conversations around race and equity and and ism all the isms, then I have mm-hmm. to be able to call out the people that I claim I'm doing this work with. If I don't call them out, then I am complicit. Right. Like like, and I think that's something that we and I've dealt with this in other parts of my life, right? When it comes to and we, we can, when it comes to misogyny, if I am yeah. doing my best to undo and deconstruct and work through a misogyny that I was given, that was pressed upon me by the country and, and, and world that I was born into, right? Which is a reality for us. Then I have to also be ready to say the things to the people that I am connected to when they do misogynistic act, uh, things. Right. And right. if I do not, right? If I do not, then, then, then that day I have failed to, un- for that day I have failed to undo no matter how much work I was doing that day to undo misogyny and sexism, that day was a day that I had to can and start again tomorrow. But we got to be honest about these things. <laughs> I want to I, I want to have young people grow up to be fortified, to yeah, have integrity. I like that word. I like that word, fortified. What? So. So something we're seeing right now is. Um, is everybody and every organization making a statement? <laughs> yeah, <true>. I've noticed. <laughs> and, okay, you noticed. <laughs> so, and I have felt, I mean, I have actually felt this also. I have felt this since 2016. I feel like, and I, and I think there's a line between the election of 2016 and everything that led to it and this moment as well. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of, um, on the progressive side of things, there was a lot of, and, you know, among great journalistic institutions, which I will not name, you know, like one brilliant commentator after the other, acknowledging how much they had not seen, what they hadn't been paying attention to, what they hadn't seen coming. But I don't, I, I rarely saw this next step of acknowledging the complicity of getting us to this point. And, and I mean, this is, it's painful and awful, right? To mm-hmm. have to, like, when I read your book, and I keep thinking of growing up in, in Oklahoma in a small town and even like how we would read about the Trail of Tears, right? Coming, right. which made our state, which like led to our state. Or the history that you're telling that we all learned about 
I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this book that we didn't learn, but there's, a, I mean, the three-fifths compromise. Mm. This, you know, this, you know, I remember I was in 1976, I was 16. It was the bicentennial of our great country. And we learned those things that, if, you know, that, that for five slaves equaled three humans. And, right. and in fact, as you tell it, that so that slaves... Uh, were both hum- were human and subhuman, and and that this was a power play in which both the North and the South participated. Correct. Um, and on, I mean, you know, we could use so many examples, but I look back, and and I don't know why we didn't. Like it's just. <laughs> like why why were we sitting there? Why were teachers teaching it, and why were we just sitting there taking it? And because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, you do. I want to say you do a lot. I mean, it's terrible. Just not not just that it doesn't make sense. It's awful. It's absurd. And you do a lot. You do something in the book, the stamped book, where you you stop at something and you you do a pause. <laughs> For sure. A huge pause, like capital letters, <laughs> bigger font. You do pause. You do like take a breath. Yep. And you'll also sometimes unpause. Yep. And to me, like that is a narrative technique, but I almost feel like it's an offering. It's, a, it's almost like a narrative technique we need from now on. You know what? It's, it, 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 it's, I've been in, so I've had these conversations um before for other books that I've written, you know, All American Boys mm-hmm. was a book about police brutality that I toured for yeah. years and years. So we were having these conversations in person, right? And so public forums, public spaces, thousands of people, uh, in places that I normally uh, had not, that I had not been, and my mother would have advised against, uh, you know. And yeah. uh, and what I noticed is and that's that her it, job, and it's your job. That is to her job, her and it's my job to say, I got to do what <laughs> yeah. I got to do. You raised yeah. me to do what I have to do, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but one thing I noticed is that is the discomfort, you know, for a long time, if you even said the word white in public around white people, uh, they were, you could feel all the room, all the air in the room sort of suck out of the room, you know, like you you could feel that it's like, why, why are we, we can't even say sort of these, these labels that are used just as descriptors. uh, We can't even say that. So how are we going to ever have a bigger conversation when I can't even say white and black, right? We can't like, and so I wanted to, I understood that going into the making of this book. And so what I wanted to do was figure out how to eliminate all excuse to backpedal out of the pages. I needed to make sure that no one closed the book. So no matter how heavy the topic was, I understood mm-hmm. that there were going to be people who read this who got so uncomfortable and 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 so sort of vexed over a thing that they did not know um, that affects their lives, uh, particularly affects their lives for the positive in ways that they did not know. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't want them to sort of. Um, you know, that human thing that we do, which is defensive, right? I didn't want the defense mechanism to kick in and then they say, I can't read this. It's not for me. So instead I'd say, look, let's, let's pause, take a break, take a breath yeah. as a way to recenter. I've watched, you know, my mother's back in the day, my mother's meditation circles and all these people. Like I watched that moment of people being like, let's, let's recenter. Let's take a second. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You also say breath breaks, your breath <laughs> breaks and pauses. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a breath. Let's take a moment. Yeah. Everyone is still here. We're all still alive. We're mm-hmm. all still, everyone's all right. 
But we, we got to keep moving forward. Say, so take a breath, get yourself together and we'll and we'll push on, um, especially since I'm dealing with kids. Right. Like I love kids, all kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I love all the children. At the end of the day, I think that's our one vested interest. No matter what you think, everybody wants children to be OK. Um, and so in order for me to make sure, again, that I'm being responsible, if I'm going to dump all this information, some of which mm-hmm. can be really um, world shattering for some people when they find out some of this stuff. I yeah. need to also, uh, for young people especially, put some mattress there to say, look, this is all very true, but I love you. And so let's take a second. I want to make uh, let, 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 let's do a temperature check to make sure that you're all right. <laughs> right. And, and then we can keep right. it pushing. Um, tell me about Angela Davis and what she means to you. Oh man, Angela Davis. First of all, there's no way I could talk about Angela Davis first without saying that Angela Davis is a part of a long line of black women that have been uh, erased from, from the, the sort of, for lack of better term, the Mount Rushmore of 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 mm. black of, of all black liberation movements. That's right? a pretty good term. You know, and so like yeah. because because she she's been dismissed and erased and tamped down. You know, Ida B. Wells has been dismissed and erased and tamped down. Zora Neale Hurston mm-hmm. dismissed and erased and tamped down. You know, and I could go on Claudette Colvin. I mean, I can go on and on and on of specifically the black women who continue, by the way, uh, to be dismissed, erased, and tamped down. Um, uh, but Angela Davis is a very specific case because she tends she has tended to be on the right side and has made the right decisions in terms of aligning herself with anti-racism for the entirety of her of her career. She sits at the uh, she sits at the at the converging point of of everything race, uh, sex and gender, class, um, prison reform uh uh, I mean everything. Like she, she's the one who said we need to think about prison reform or abolishing prisons, for that matter. Despite how controversial some people may think that is, she's the, she's the one who fought for political prisoners and for and for uh, the way that prisoners were being uh, not prisoners, the way that inmates were being treated uh, in prisons around this country. She's the one who fought back against the stereotypes that people kept saying about uh, you know the welfare queen and all this, that, and the third in the eighties. She yeah. was the, she was the one fighting against that back then, saying that there's nothing wrong with black people. There's other right? other ways our imaginations got oh. filled. Goodness. Absolutely. Yeah. She was yeah. the one talking about um, uh, obviously racing and, 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 and class. She was the one fighting for poor people. Right. She was the one fighting for LGBTQIA plus rights when it wasn't popular. Right? She was fighting for that. Uh, we're talking about someone who who is, uh, you know, an anti-racist, but also a humanist. Like this is a person who yeah. who just understands that human beings deserve freedom and liberation no matter who they are or what they got going on. Right. Addiction is 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 illness. Addiction is not, <laughs> it should not be getting right. 20, 20 years in prison. It should not be, yeah, you know, And, and she yeah. was saying all of those things. She was saying all those things, yeah. you know, and, um, and I think she should be studied. Look, I, I love Dr. King like the next person. Uh, I also love Malcolm X. I think he has an important part to play in this conversation. I, I, there are a lot of, I mean, I love some of the work of Carmichael. I love the artists, uh, what the artists were making of that time and, and their sort of thoughts around race. But I, yeah. but, but no one, 
not even them, uh, intellectually was saying the things that I believe um, Angela Davis was saying as it pertains to anti-racist thought and theory, right? Now, Dr. Mm -hmm. King, obviously one of the greatest speakers to ever walk the earth, and I'd say one of the greatest writers, uh, you know, without a doubt. No one, like I'm not, you know. And a a poet, actually. And and, and a poet, right? I'm not going to ever take that from him. But he also, but his methodology uh, mm-hmm. And you could argue that it worked. That's you know everybody has their own opinions about it. But but his methodology one that was assimilationist, right? Like because he mm-hmm. because because in his mind assimilationism was the way, right? We if mm-hmm. we, if 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 we present ourselves uh, with some proxi- closer to if we present ourselves with proximity to whiteness, then perhaps they'll respect us. If we show ourselves uh, as 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 bigger than the violence, as we show ourselves uh, as bigger than carnal people, right, carnal beings, uh, then the world will see that we deserve respect. If and all of that is is a, a tactic, but if we're going to talk about it honestly, I shouldn't have to show myself as anything other than myself to be respected. Right. Period. Right. Whether right. I have on a suit or a sweatsuit, I, I, de- I deserve to be because I am. Um, and Angela Davis was saying that. You know, one thing that you've said a lot and I feel needs to be really clearly out there as we walk forward is that this is not, this moment is not, you know, even so, you're talking about yeah so that that you're calling the society and and white people to not just focus on the young people of color. It is convenient and comfortable to love. Ah, mm. uh, yes. Um, you know, <laughs> the way I talk, the way I like to. Recently, I've been thinking about this a lot. So. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you hear people all the time like, "Oh, I'm not racist. I've got white friends." Right? It's like a, it's a joke. It's almost a joke at this point, right? Like people, <laughs> I can't be what racist. Did you say also one thing you said about Thomas Jefferson and Stanford, uh, yeah, he's the he he's the father of that, right? He's <laughs> the first person who said I have black friends. <laughs> he's the very first person to ever say he got right. black friends, right? Like he right. gotta okay. be. And I think, yeah. but I think, but I think that idea that like I've got black friends, I can't be racist. I got black friends, or I know people who have black children, right? I can't be racist. I have black children, right? Or I have a black partner. Um, and the way I like to think about it is, you know how many uh, some of my 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 women friends who are heterosexual. Oh, you know what? Hang on, Jason. I I got I got some noise upstairs. Can I? I'm gonna come right back. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Okay. All right. Hang on to that thought. Um, hey, Jason, as long as we're paused, would you mind turning your headphones down just a little bit? Yeah, you're still let able me to see. Krista that way. Is that the bottom one? Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can totally yeah. hear you. Well, can it's I, mostly that we're hearing oh, I can hear um, Krista come back, like through your headphones, come back through the Oh, sorry about that. Oh, no, it's, all, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. You got to get one of these microphones for all your appearances. I know, man. I got to make an investment. <laughs> okay, this is the reality of home studio. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> okay, so I have black friends. Yes. So, you know, there's this, this, 
thing about black friends, right? I'm not racist because I have black friends or I'm not racist because I have a black partner. I can't be racist because I have a black child. Yeah. I, and the way I always I always try to explain it to people is I have I have so many women friends who my heterosexual specifically my heterosexual women friends who say if you want to know how a man is going to treat you just look at how he treats his mother and then you'll know whether or not he's good or not and my reply to that is that is ridiculous because that man sees his mother as exceptional that's his mother (laughs) you're not his mother And so when I think about... I said that to my daughter, I will but, confess. But think about it. But you're not his mom. He, he, he sees his mom as exceptional. And that is right. the reason right. why he treats right. her the way he treats her. Okay. And so when we think about this idea of the black friend, it's not that you're not racist. It's that you somehow have aligned yourself with who you believe mm-hmm. is an exceptional black person. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is the problem. And These that is are, not the work. These are black people who are convenient for you to love. But the truth is, is that the kid on your block, the one that you're scared to walk past, you got to love him, too. Yeah. Right. You got to love him, too. The ones who are the ones who are locked in juvenile detention centers unfairly most of the time doing hard time Mm -hmm. because America has Mm -hmm. hard time for children. The one of the only countries that have maximum security youth prisons. You got to love them, too. Right. You got to love them too. the ones who blast their music coming down your block. Right. And you can't understand why they got to turn the music. You got to love. You got to push back against everything in you that wants to say something that wants to see something wrong with them and love them, too. If not, then then it doesn't matter how many black friends you have. It's a specific kind of black person that you're okay with, not black people. And that's the difference. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about rage. Me too. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and okay, and the word rage, which is kind of in our public vocabulary, like sitting there unsure of itself, but it's there, and it's not. It's not necessarily like there's a sense in which there's a sense that it, it's rightly there. I want to read you some lines from this young man Dante Stewart, who Please. turned me on to you. Um, he wrote something in Sojourners. Um, about black rage. He said, black, he's a seminarian, he's, he's a preacher and pastor. Black rage in an anti-black world is a spiritual virtue. Rage shakes us out of our illusion that the world as it is, is what God wants. Rage forces us to deal with the gross system of inequality, exploitation, and disrespect. Rage is the public cry for black dignity. It becomes the public expression of a theological truth that black lives matter to God. Wow. I, uh, I'm with him. I think, you know, <laughs> I'm with him. I think, I think that, uh, you know, I used to always say that America has a difficult time talking about race, sex, and anger. You know, but I think I think he's I think it's rage. We have a hard time uh, addressing rage. And and I think uh, I think he's right. I think it is of a, a, I think it is a, a virtue. I think it's important. You know, I have a 
the, one of my best friends in the world, Maisha Cherry, and, and she's a philosopher and she does the, she writes about the philosophy of anger, the philosophy of rage, the philosophy of forgiveness. These, mm. Yeah, that's, that's like her, she's a black. What's her name? Maisha V. Cherry, like the fruit. Okay. Maisha Cherry, uh, brilliant, okay. brilliant writer uh, and philosopher and, and scholar out in California. But that's her whole thing, right? Like there is theoretical and she's also, by the way, uh, she uh, she is an ordained minister as well. Uh, she, mm-hmm. doesn't pra- she doesn't practice anymore, but she is ordained. And, and there is... Sacred rage. Maybe we need to coin that term. Yeah, yeah there's something about, there's something yeah. theoretical and theological uh, about about rage. Um, and, I, and I think we raise, and I think we raise our young people to, to, uh, to try to avoid it. And I think... Because we raise young, I th- I th- look, I believe that we are, so many people are so scared for all kinds of reasons that they mm-hmm. are raising young people to not full feel, uh, their, to not feel their feelings to the fullest extent, yeah. right? And then when those young people are 25, uh, rage becomes, it's interesting because then I believe that rage becomes reactionary rage. Uh, and not one that mm. is con- and not a conscious rage, right? Black mm-hmm. folks have a right to have a conscious rage, right? Mm-hmm. A conscious rage. I mean, Baldwin always talks about it, right? Like if you are conscious in America, you you know, if you are a black person who's conscious in America, then you are basically living in a state of anger. Yeah. <laughs> you are living in a state of anger. It is a conscious and constant um, thing. The other thing, though, I will say, I will, the only thing I will add uh and not as a pushback, but that as, as an addendum, is that if, if it is not a conscious rage, meaning if it is not a rage that we can tap into, right, a rage that exists within the quiver of, of our lives, along with the joy, um, mm-hmm. then then it can very well poison us and overtake us. Right. And it become it can become mm-hmm. it can be, it become it, it can become an illness. It can cause illness. Uh, so 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 reactionary rage is a dangerous thing. Right, but to mm-hmm. be able to, but to, but to be able to tap into a conscious rage, uh, I think is a gift, and I do believe it is a virtue. I think I'm thinking about the Psalms, and mm. how they're full, full of actually murderous rage, they and are. and and really like that, and we don't even read those Psalms in church, but they're in there, but 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 it holds it together with all these other things in this very dramatic interplay. Mm. I mean the the power of poetry, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. The power of poetry. I think I think rage is like I feel rage now, right? And, and but but the way that but you one one has to know how to wield it. And I think for me, I choose to put my rage into the energy of of helping young people process the world around them. But it comes from a place of rage, and that rage is connected to a love, right? A true love, an aching love that I want. Uh, that I have for young people to grow uh, into the people who will push forward, who push forward freedom and anti-racism in, in an equitable world. I think they have it. I think they want it in a way that we've never seen before. I mean, even just the way that they're thinking about saving the planet. Uh, yeah. I think that I think that their environmental their their environmental foresight does not stop with nat- with, with with sort of vegetation and, and, and atmospheric happenings of, 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 of the space in which we live, I think it also has to do with all natural elements, including human beings, right? When, I, mm-hmm. when, when they're talking about yeah. environmental change, I really do think that many of them want to change the environment, literally shift the landscape. That does not, yeah. that does not uh, uh, exclude humanity 
<laughs> I mean, Krista, if you yeah. think about it, right, if you think about their generation, and I say this often because I think it's important, um, their generation is teased and, and ridiculed and criticized for being yeah. for being too empathetic. Yeah. As if as if that's a bad thing. Yeah. And and all of us who tease them and ridicule them because they have somehow made our lives a bit more complicated and uncomfortable because now we have to watch what we say. We have to be careful <laughs> right. of think about that. Right. right. We have to we have to right. be careful about making other right. people feel small and we're upset yeah. about it. We will have egg on our faces 20 years from now, because what they're mm-hmm. saying is we are we are trying to make an equitable world. We, are, we want to make a world where everyone feels safe and free and we ridicule them for it. So strange. Right. <laughs> a couple, of, yeah. So here's here's some li- a line of Angela Davis that I actually like read, kind of par- parallel to reading you, and just I wrote it down. You have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world, and you have to do it all the time, right? And, mm-hmm. and they are making that leap of the imagination. But here's I want to ask you about this too, because I hear you almost identifying with the oldsters, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How old are you? Thirty. Th- 36. 30s? 36. 36. I'm so fascinated by how the speed of the generations is collapsing, right? So like how old, there's a big gap, there's a big generation gap between older millennials and younger millennials, and then it right. really drops off <laughs> younger than that. But okay, here's something that's on my mind, and I'm I'm a true elder, right? I'm 59. Um, and I'm I don't know if that. that makes you an elder, but okay. Well, well, no. These days, I am. I am ready. I'm ready. But but here's why. I think, you know, in the '60s, also, I've heard people say this. Um, we people said, "Oh, the young will save us," right? Hmm. But what I feel really strongly is, as radical as they are, our young people. We have to walk alongside them. Like they deserve to be accompanied. And even this move that you help young people make of stopping and taking a breath, that's not natural. Right. When you're 12 or 16 or 22. And actually, that's part of the strength of being 12 or 16 or 22, right? It's that, it's that impatience, that holy impatience, that wise impatience. Mm. But, but the history of radicalism. Like part of, you know, the 60s just burned out in cynicism and yeah. gave us hedge funds. Yeah. And so I do feel like, like, I, I, I wonder like how you would talk to the rest of us who are not identifying as young people yeah. who are looking at that generation and praising them and talking about how amazing they are. Oh, my God, they have a hard road ahead. We all have a hard road ahead. But like, what is our work? To accompany them towards, I love your word, fortitude. I, I think. And toward, so that they can really grow into the fullness of their imaginations and their power. Yeah. So, fantastic question. So, a few things. One, I think, uh, first and foremost, I think there are, there are, like you said, there are some older folks who are encouraging and who are like, yeah, go out there and get them. Uh, but there, I think there are actually more older folks who are like, y'all don't know what y'all doing uh, mm-hmm. or or saying, you know, all y'all do is is buck back. Right. So to them, first of all, I say no one wants to live in a world where young people are not irreverent. 
first and foremost. Right, uh, right. Uh, right. A world where young people are not irreverent is not a world for me because it is a world that is not growing. Uh, they have to shake the table. If you like your young person's art and music, your young people are doing something wrong. The truth is, is that it's <laughs> right. That's right. It's just the natural yeah. order of things. It's the natural yeah. order of things. Uh, it is their time to sort of mold what they want the world to look like. So what's our role is the question. And, and, and our role, I think, in this moment, uh, it isn't just it, it isn't just like I've heard people say we got to get out the way. Here's the thing. I think mm-hmm. that they don't want us out the way, despite what despite what you may hear. It's not that they want us out the way. I think what they want for us to do is to listen to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I think uh, what, I, what I've learned over the years is that when we talk about entitlement, what we do is we say that young people are so entitled. Yet I don't know a group of people more entitled than adults uh, yeah. and through older people. I mean, we really believe mm-hmm. that we deserve their respect simply because Baby we have. Ye- yeah, like, because we have years on them. And the truth is, is that respect mm-hmm. must be earned. And I think what they're saying is, please make a seat for me at the table. You can't mm-hmm. talk about my life and not include me. Right. You have to make a seat for me at the table. If you ask me, every school should have a child representative uh, at, 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 the, at the meetings. Right. Like at the school every, board, on the school board, on the school board, at the staff mm-hmm. meetings. I, I, the way I mm-hmm. see it, why wouldn't you have a student at your staff meetings? Just one a representative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is it because yeah. one of the, you might be afraid of what you might say? Good. That's why you need them there or her right. there. Right. Someone to hold you accountable uh, mm-hmm. and to represent the, 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 the body politic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I also think that we we as adults and myself and then those older than me, obviously, I think we have to also make a decision. And I always say this. This isn't necessarily our <clears throat> this isn't our ship to man. Right. We're supposed to serve as the lighthouse. Right. My job is to point you in the direction. My job isn't to man the ship. And I know that's complicated mm-hmm. for a lot of us, but the truth is, is that I, I, I think if we do our jobs in showing the way, right, just showing the way, uh, then I think we can stand beside them, um, right? Then I think we can say, look, you take the leadership role, you tell me, right? And if you need me, or if I see you walking into the fire, then I'll pull your coattail. My mom, my mom raised us like this. My mom would always say, you know, my friends would be like, yo, my mom don't like my girlfriend, Right. It's always that 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 sort of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, yo, OK, I, my mom don't like it. And now my relationship is complicated because my mom don't like it. And my mom has made it known that she doesn't like her. My mother's my mother was never that way. My mother always said, listen, I gave you everything I could give you. So who you choose, I'm going to trust is who you want. Now, the, the only way I will ever pull your coattails is if I see something uh, that is going to physically put you in harm's way. I'll pull your coattail. Right. Then I say, eh, 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 I don't know about that. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, or, or if you ask me for advice or you ask me for information, I'll give it to you. Other than that, I'm going to trust that I have filled you with the necessary decision making abilities to pick somebody that you like for whatever reason you like that person at that time. And if there's emotional pain that comes from it, I will help you. Pro- I will help you process the mm-hmm. emotional mm-hmm. pain to make mm-hmm. you stronger for the next relationship. That is mm-hmm. our role in this movement. Mm. Right. It's that simple. Right. It's like, look, I am here. If you need help, you need strategy planning. You need to understand how this works. You need some historical reference and context. I'm here to do you all need those somebody things. to help you take some breaths. You need somebody to help you take some breaths. You need somebody to help you make sandwiches and make sure yeah. that y'all got the proper shoes on and right. These right. simple things. Right. right. And, right. and if and if there's going if, there's, if you're going to walk into harm's way. 
I'm gonna pull your coattail and say, hey, 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 are we certain? Let, let, let's let's mm-hmm. let's go over the rules. Let's make sure that we are doing what we want to be doing. Mm-hmm. But if you are emotionally broken, if something happens that 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 hurts you emotionally, then it's my job to step in and say, let's process what has happened. Let's figure mm-hmm. out where the failure is. Let's figure mm-hmm. out how to grow from it, how to get strong, and then we need to get back out into the street. That's the role of the elders right now. Mm-hmm. Not not follow me. Not this is the way mm-hmm. I did it. Not mm-hmm. you guys are doing it wrong. Not no 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 that doesn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, look, I'm with you. Tell me what you want me to do. Tell me where you want me to go. If I see the fire coming, I'm going to say, there goes the fire. I've seen fire before. Let's head this way. Right. That's right. it. <laughs> That's so good. So helpful. Um, is there anything that you came this morning to this conversation thinking about or that I didn't ask you that you just want to name or talk no, about? I mean, I love this show. I've listened to this show for a long time. And uh, I just want to say, while I have you here and we're still recording, I just want to say I appreciate uh, these conversations. I appreciate you having me and, and a lot of my friends have been on here and, I'm, and I appreciate you having them. Uh, you know, I heard Ocean was on here and, yeah. and, and Ibram's been on here and all kinds of people that I love in real life uh, yeah. have have been here. And a lot of us, um, I mean, well, the ones you've had, most of them are, are pretty famous, but a lot of us don't often get opportunities to to mine our thoughts publicly like this um, or to be asked these kinds of questions, uh, to be asked interior uh, questions. And so uh, I appreciate you and, I, and I'm grateful for the work that, you, that you've done and continue to do. That means a lot, Jason, and it means a lot to have your voice as part of this. And now we're, now we're walking alongside each other. For sure. Um, so, you know, one thing... As you know, one thing that feels scary for people, for white people right now, is saying the wrong thing, right? Like somehow right. We, we, we're going to have to get better at, um, well, there's so many things we could talk. I mean, we're going to have to get, <laughs> we're gonna have to get better at letting each other. It's kind of similar to what you just said. Like we have to make space in our life together to be learning and growing. And that means that people will fail and mm. we have to find ways to you know, rehumanize and welcome failure that turns into growth. But mm. um, anyway, I just want to, I want to name, and it feels a little scary to name this, that I I get troubled by the language of anti-racism as the main word or the main goal, because like, it's a negative negative. <laughs> <laughs> This is me being, this is me with my concern about words, right? That's great. <laughs> it's a negative, negative. So, so what I want to know, and so, and I'm, and I actually, I'm coming to terms with the fact that this is the thing we have to reckon with right now and become is anti-racist. But it's not, it can't be the end, right? That's not, so, 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 so with that I'm curious what you think about that, but it also, to me, it goes together with the question I wanted to ask you, which is, what do you, because one way to describe all of this reflection in, in the book, in Stamped, but in all of your work is, is just opening up this question of what it means to be human, fully human. Yeah. And, and seeing that, seeing that more fully. So, so I, what, how, how would you start to talk about what it means to be fully human 
what it means to be human, how that's evolving in you, and what that has to do with anti-racism. Mm. What does it mean to be to be human? Hopefully, uh, my hello, my hope. Is are you guys there? By the way, yeah, I'm here. I think Krista might Krista. have gotten bumped off. Hold on. Yeah, Krista, Hello? you there? Yeah. What happened? Uh, you just you got bumped off. Your network bumped you off. But we're okay. We're but good. he was ta- he's still talking. Yeah, okay, good. He's good. here. Okay. He's he's about to to answer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. What does it mean to be human? Uh, <laughs> which is like you know, it's like. Being asked, what's the meaning of life? You know, I, I, but, I know, yeah. I know. So, so like, just how would you start to answer it right now? At uh, yeah, no, you know what? For me, I, I think um, it means to be changing. Uh, it means to be evolving, mm. right? I think that the, the, mm. that's the part about humanity that excites me the most is that it's malleable. Um, it, it shifts, it change, changes. the The ways of life can change at any given moment, and we can adapt to said ways of life. Um, it means, you know, I always talk about sort of indoctrination. Human beings have been indoctrinated. And so if we've been indoctrinated, then that means that we can also make new doctrine and then be re-indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, and so, you know, and when it connects to how it connects to anti-racism is, is that in and of itself, right? We can, to, first and foremost, I have to say this, right? No one is actually, because my friends, my white friends especially, are like, yo, I'm trying to become anti-racist. That's not a thing, right? So so let's, I want to make sure that we're clear. Right, it, it's, right. It, it's, it's not it's, a thing. It's, an, it's, it's, to, it's to not it, be it's a to, Not like that, Krista. I know the language is tripping you up. What I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is it, it's not a, it's not a, there's no finish line. Is what I'm saying. It's, there's right. no, there's right. no finish line. There's okay. No, right? Okay. So there's okay. no finish line. There's this idea yeah. that people are going to read this book or they're going to read all the books, right? And then all of a sudden they're going to be anti-racist. And what I'm saying is um, this, you know, and mm-hmm. that's and that's also a very American thing, this idea that there are winners and losers, that there's a binary that we live in, a bifurcation when it comes to that which is a failure and that which is victorious. The truth of the matter is this is about journeymen, right? Journey folk. Our job is to yeah. constantly be pressing toward a thing. But that thing is ever elusive. Right. And the reason why it is right. ever elusive right. is because the world and humanity continues to evolve. And because it, be- it continues to evolve, the things that complicate our lives evolve with it. And so we have to be vigilant to continue to figure out what, what the new versions of these of these ailments are so that we can continue to, to tear down that house. Right. But there's no end goal. There's no there's no like, you know, I, okay. and, and I think that's sort of how humanity and anti-racism connect. Okay, so anti-racism is this muscle. It's a muscle that has to be developed. That is with us at every step of the journey. Yeah, and it's and it's simply and by the way, to to get back to your original question, anti-racism is simply the muscle that says that humans are human. That's it, right? Yeah. It's it's the one right. that says I love you because you are you. Period. Mm-hmm. That's all. Mm-hmm. And and if we can figure out mm-hmm. how to do that, and it feels so simple. And this is why racism is such a is has been like the greatest hoax ever played on humans. It's the greatest hoax ever, yeah. right? And because 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 that 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 element of I love you because you are you should be the most human thing we we know. 
it it should be a natural thing, right? To say, look, I love you because you remind me more, you you remind me more of myself than not. <laughs> right. Oh, I really appreciate you, and I'm so grateful for this conversation. You know, my um, I have a daughter who's in her early twenties, and well, actually, she's in her mid twenties now, and she um, she's a wonderful artistic person and she writes and she said um, she has said to me she said to me when she was quite young she said I want to write children's books that will help heal adults mm. I mean help the children too right but also help heal adults and I feel like your work but also this conversation has that force and will have the force this force for our beautiful, far-flung world of listeners. And so I'm just really happy that this is how I got to spend this Monday morning. Me too. Thank you so much, Krista. Thank you. We will, um, I think we're going to try to put this on the air pretty quickly. Cool. Um, Which for us, for us, you know, we're a weekly show, so it's not as quick as it can be in other places, but we'll make it beautiful. And I'm Thank you, and we'll let you know everything that's happening. You know, I haven't I haven't interviewed Ibram X. Kendi. Oh, you yeah. You're first. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you.